Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome all of you who are watching the live stream and all of you who watch us later on YouTube. This is uh, one of over 700 programs that the Commonwealth Club has put together after the pandemic began, almost two years ago now. And uh, we bring to you live streaming and uh, sometimes without an audience altogether, uh, the authors and the topics in politics and foreign affairs that we brought to you for the last 119 years. We just celebrated our 119th birthday. So um, welcome. And tonight we have a great uh, topic, something that's always uh, been interesting in America. And, uh, and, and it's important to see what the history of it is, because uh, every time we have a big problem with this topic, uh, people forget that we've gone through this about a dozen times before. So we have Nancy Foner with us today. Um, her book is called One Quarter of the Nation, Immigration and the Transformation of America. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club, Nancy. Oh, thank you. So you're going to focus, your, your book focuses anyway, we'll cover some uh, other stuff from before, but your book focuses on post-1965, uh, the, the immigration law there. So why don't you tell us what happened in 1965 that changed the game? It really changed the game. Yeah. I mean, in 1965, there was legislation that was passed in Congress that eliminated, abolished the national origins quotas that had dominated, they had shaped immigration since 1924. Um, the bill that the national origins quotas went into effect in 1924 as basically as a way to eliminate uh, immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, which was enormous between 1880 and 1920. Already before that bill had been passed in 1924, there had been bars on Asian immigration. Uh, so that for dozens of years, well, more than dozen decades, the U.S. had experienced very low immigration. So that by 1970, which is right after the 65 law was passed, less than 5% of the nation were foreign-born and under 10 million. Mm -hmm. The 1965 law changed the way immigrants, how they, whether they could come and who could come. It changed that now it was, there was no different, different countries did not have specific quotas. There were, there was an overall number limiting immigration to the United States and from various parts of the world, but not by country. And now family reunification became the main basis for admitting, getting a legal permanent residence and to some extent employment. And as soon as the law went into effect, which, by the way, the sign that the Congress had did not know, they, they didn't think that this was going to happen. They thought, actually, it was going to lead to more European immigration mm -hmm. because there had been restrictions on Southern and Eastern and Central European immigration. But that was not what happened. There was not much desire from Europe to come to the U.S. And instead, what it did was it led to huge increases in immigration from Latin America, from the Caribbean, from um, Asia. And later on, there were, there were a further um, expansion of immigration from Africa as well. And so it changed where immigrants were coming from, and it changed the numbers. Mm -hmm. And so that by, whereas I said that in 1960, um, uh, there were, uh, what, uh, 70, there were 
5 million immigrants in the United States. Today, there are 45 million immigrants in the United States. And whereas in 1970, less than 5% of the population was foreign-born, today, it's 14% foreign-born. Mm -hmm. And if you add on the children of, of immigrants, the U.S.-born children of immigrants, it's 26%. And that's one quarter of the nation. It's a little more than one quarter of the nation. And so the law had and, and not just, it was a 65 law that, and then subsequent legis congressional legislation actually expanded the number of immigrants coming in. And here I'm talking about lawful permanent residents, mm -hmm. um, those who are coming, you know, who are, who are given, who have the ability to live and work here. Yeah. Um, so uh, part of this number, the one quarter, does it, does it include the illegal immigrants or does it not? Yes. It does, yeah. It does, it yeah. does. Because the one quarter figure, when I tell you that there are 45 million immigrants, that's a census, you know, from the census data. Right. And that includes, it doesn't ask if you're undocumented or documented. Mm -hmm. It's based on where you say you're born. Mm -hmm. And so out of that 45 million, about 10 or 11 million are actually undocumented. Those are the estimates that most uh, social scientists accept or, you know, put forward. So about a quarter of the immigrants who live in the United States are undocumented, which is actually a very high proportion. Yeah. Um, and we can talk more about that later. It's also yeah. that many of those, actually a very high percentage, about two-thirds or more, have been living here 10 years or more. So they're actually, a, on the whole, a, a quite settled population. Yeah, I think uh, before we go uh, more deeply into this to make sure our audience knows where we're going, uh, your story, although um, that's a totally different expectation, I mean, totally different outcome from what was expected mm -hmm. by the Congress in 65. They thought mm -hmm. they were going to get one thing, they got something else altogether. Mm -hmm. But the story of immigration and how it influences it, it, it hardly changes at all depending upon where the people come from. That, that is, that, that the same outcome of immigration on our economy um, uh, seem, mm -hmm. seems to be the same benefits. The, the, there are some different disadvantages and stuff like that, but mm -hmm. the same benefits uh, don't seem to be that uh, strong based upon where the people come from. Uh, no, I think that there, it, I, don't, I, don't actually, I don't actually look at it quite that way in the uh -huh. book, but yes, there are, the, the benefits of immigration have been, or the changes that immigration has brought Mm -hmm. And the benefits it has brought have been similar throughout American history. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yes. Although, I, you know, I'm, it's, it's obviously not exactly the same. Things do not repeat themselves exactly the same no, way, no. obviously. Yeah. And, for example, I mean, we could talk about undocumented immigration, which in the past we didn't have, you know, if you looked at the, the Frequent comparison is to 100 years ago um, or more, you know, when we had this massive immigration from Eastern Central um, and Southern Europe between 1880 and the 1920s. And then there were very few undocumented immigrants because there were no numerical limitations on immigration and there were no visas that you had to get before you came here. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one way, by the way, that it's different. <laughs> right. Why would people sneak in when they can just walk in? Right. Yeah, or or take the boat in. Yeah. <laughs> the big thing was getting on the boat, actually, not 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 getting into. Once you were on the boat, you were good. So we had a lull from 1924 mm -hmm. to 1970 or so, uh, where immigration was not. Mm -hmm. But in the 50s, when everyone was so so, did that contribute at all to the idea in the 50s, which is smack dab in the middle of that, that that America was stable and it was a certain kind of thing and that it shouldn't change. That's what America is. 
Or is that, or is that, or is that just based on the fact that the people who were writing in 2000 were all born in the 50s, and so everybody? <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a lot of different reasons, but yes, I think the fact that there was low immigration, mm -hmm. um, partly because of the restrictive legislation, partly because there was a Great Depression, partly because there was World War II, mm -hmm. that there hadn't been new recruits coming in, and so the people, yes, and and there were uh, the second generation, the children of immigrants were growing up, and they were coming at the post World War II period was also a very prosperous period in American history. Mm -hmm. And so the children of immigrants um, were able to advance and move up and they were assimilating and becoming American. And so, yes, I think that's a big change. Then all of a sudden, by this, you know, the, the big movement begins in the late 60s, but people don't begin to really see it, you know, until mm -hmm. much until later. But by the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, there are, there's large numbers of immigrants who are living in this country and they're coming from different places. They're not Europeans. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, they're, they're coming mostly from Latin America, the Caribbean and Asia. One of the things that... Uh concern some people is the the different religions that the immigrants have and you you, you talk about how now that there are uh, mosques and there are, are Hindu temples and so on mm -hmm. a small number um, but what you know people who've studied it of course know but this is very much like when the Catholics uh, first started coming um, and mm -hmm. so why don't you talk about that because they were treated pretty much the same way and their churches were tr treated pretty much the same way um, but but that didn't stop anything, right? <laughs> um, well, yeah, sure. if you look back, I think that's one of the myths. You know, people will say, um, well, in the past, immigrants, well, one thing we can talk about, it's ra ra there's racial ideas that they were white. Mm -hmm. um, and also that, yes, that they were, they, 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 were, they were accepted, they were, they, compared to immigrants today. I don't think the focus actually is so much on their religions coming today, because actually most immigrants who come today are Christian, mm -hmm. about 70 percent, 75 percent. The, mm -hmm. They're all Muslim and Hindu and, uh, and other religions people come, but they're very small percentage of immigrants today, actually. Mm -hmm. um, what I think people forget is the prejudice and discrimination and difficulties that immigrants European immigrants had in the past, yes, and part of it was religion. There was vicious anti-Catholicism in this country. Um, there was a, a, a political movement in the mid-1800s to, to deny them the right to vote, uh, you know, to keep them from public office. Um, very vicious anti-Catholicism, and that did not let up for a long time. I mean, the big thing was, you know, even when John F. Kennedy ran for president, the notion was, you know, he was going to take order from the Pope. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there was a lot of anti-Catholicism and, of course, a lot of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. um, large numbers of Jews came in the, in the 1880 to 1920 period. And very vicious, you know, the, the also anti-Italian, which was not just a matter of their Catholic religion. It was a lot had to do with that, but also they both Jews and Italians were thought of as racially inferior. Mm -hmm. They were legally white, but they were seen as inferior whites. They were seen mm -hmm. that they were polluting America, mm -hmm. that they would ruin this country, that they would never assimilate. And we, we really, I think people forget that. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, there was movements to try to restrict their entry, which ultimately were successful in 1924. Right. So, you know, there, there, there has been anti-immigrant sentiment before, and it's taken the, the form of um, being intolerant or hostile to their religions, and also 
notions of race. They were different. Race was not a color-coded word as much as it is today. Mm -hmm. In the past, you could be white, but you could be an inferior white. Mm -hmm. And there were there were notions also of Italians were often referred to as swarthy, and they were the largest immigrant group in the, at the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. They were seen by many as not really truly white. Um, Jews were seen to look look different. Um, there was one study that was done in New York of Jewish noses to show that <laughs> Jews, you know, actually it was shown to disprove that Jews didn't have a particular nose. Right. But I mean, the fact that anybody was doing a study like that is kind of incredible. Mm -hmm. um, so that there was a lot of, and, and, and in fact, one of the, the questions that we ask in, 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 in the social sciences is, you know, well, how did it happen that Jews and Italians and the Irish, you know, and mm -hmm. how did they become part of a, you know, equal members of a white community. And how how did the country go from not being, you know, a Protestant nation, you know, mm -hmm. um, to one that sees itself now as Protestant, Catholic and Jew? And I think, you know, that's the change that happened in the past. And the question that's asked now is, well, what's going to happen in the future? Mm -hmm. um, and immigrants, of course, coming in today, many of them are seen as non-white. Um, they are they are Hispanic. They are Asian Americans, and there's a growing number of Black immigrants who are coming. One tenth of the, uh, one out of ten immigrants today is uh, is Black from either Af mostly from Africa or the Caribbean. So there have been you know the, the, uh, and we can talk about you know how how are immigrants changing notions of race? Are they changing notions of race in America? And will they what will what what can we p predict or think about possibilities for the future. Uh, one of the statistics you had struck me, you just mentioned it, uh, that 10% uh, of the immigrants are now uh, black. And you, you said, I think in the 1960s, if I remember, it was only 1% had been foreign born. Uh, is that an indication that, that we have at least made some progress in dealing uh, racially uh, with uh, African Americans in our country? I know we haven't made enough progress. But well, we haven't made we're enough progress. But we, yeah. <laughs> well, we, well, I think that we had a civil rights movement. You know, I mean, right. it, it hasn't done. It, 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 there are still lots and lots of problems, but there things have changed since the 1950s in terms of of the position of African Americans and uh, um, certainly um, in in America, American society. I'm not sure how well. I think. There was a, a large West Indian migration to the United States, mostly to the New York area mm -hmm. in the 1920s. But certainly um, black immigrants did not go to the American South mm -hmm. before the 1950s because it was segregated. Um, there was legal segregation. They would never have gone there. Mm -hmm. And of course, they also had problems getting admitted because um, the laws that, that I talked about that changed in 1965 um, did not allow large-scale West Indian or African immigration, mm -hmm. and so they weren't coming then. So partly it's a question of the law, partly it's a question of a changing racial scene in the United States. Mm -hmm. But I think what's relevant in terms of the transformation, I mean, and the question that we can ask is, you know, what does it make a difference that um, 10 percent of, of black people in America are foreign born. Mm -hmm. And if we look at their children, about 20 percent, if we can, you know, are either immigrants or children of immigrants. So, um, you know, I, I, that's a question that I do grapple with in the book to what extent that's made any changes in perceptions of blackness or the way people uh, uh, views of, of, of black people. 
Well, before we leave the past altogether and stick to past post-1965, um, America, as I always say, is a land of immigrants. Um, I mean, obviously, the Europeans that first came here thought it was a land for the taking, uh, which they took. Um, uh, but other than the Native Americans, everybody was an immigrant. And, and they were all different groups, and they all didn't like the other groups getting a piece of the action either. So this, this part of American culture has been going on since its start, since the colonial era. Uh, the other part that's interesting to, uh, to me about the whole immigration issue is it's a little bit of a self-selecting group, at least most of the time. You know, it's people who are ambitious enough or energetic enough to, to break the entropy that most people have. You mentioned that, that at a certain point after the 1965 Act, not many Europeans wanted to come to America. You know, and if you go back to the colonial times, who came, you know? the third and fourth sons of people who weren't going to get ahead <laughs> uh, back, back home, basically. So why don't you talk about that whole overall arching thing that we... Well, on the whole, nation, immigrants, you know? we know from studies today that immigrants are a selected group. Yeah. I mean, they are, more, they are more educated, they're more ambitious than those who stay behind on the whole. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're getting, in fact, it's wonderful for America, isn't it? I mean, we yeah. get these people coming who are, who are ambitious, who often, un, who often have high levels of education. I think people are maybe surprised to know that about a third of the foreign born in the U.S. have a college degree or more. So that's quite high. I mean, in that sense, you know, we've never had such a highly educated immigrant population. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and in fact, many, the, the experience for many of the immigrants who come who, who have high levels of education is they often can't get jobs commensurate with their their, their, their degrees um, because they lack English, because um, they can't um, satisfy certain licensing requirements. And so I guess from the U.S. point of view, we benefit by having people who are highly educated doing jobs that don't even demand, you know, taking care of children or taking care of the elderly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you get high level people who, are, who have high levels of education. Many of them have high levels of education. And also they're very ambitious and want to get ahead. And they, I think they also have very strong aspirations for their children. After all, it's very hard to move here. You know, you move yourself from one country to another. You leave behind, you know, your friends, your relatives, the place that you know. When I, I long time, my first um, research was on Jamaicans, and I did work in a Jamaican village. And the people there would tell me, you know, Jamaica is a beautiful place, but we can't make it here. We have to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and they come and they are, and I see this from my students that I teach in New York City, um, their parents are really motivated for their children to do well. Mm -hmm. They they, they make tremendous sacrifices for their children. And so I think, you know, this is a benefit um, for America. And this has, I think, always been true. Um, you know, that this, this strong motivation to do well and getting the most ambitious. And I should say, by the way, people who are probably healthier than those who stay behind. Mm -hmm. uh, those are averages. There's always exceptions. To of, that course, but of course. Of course. Just important to say it's not 100 percent. But no, the and there are, there are, are low educated you, immigrants too yeah. today. And you, you mentioned in your book uh, the number of right now, the number of doctors in the United States that were foreign yes. born is what, I, I don't remember what I was, a quarter 28 or 28% of physicians and surgeons in the U.S. are foreign born. Right. And That's uh, a very high figure. And even more in software engineers or something, right? It's, yeah, it's higher, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
that always, that always shifts the perception of immigration when people realize that. Mm -hmm. So um, let's go back to 1965. So why don't you say a little bit more about, you know, first that we'd had 40 some years, just a little over 40 years of restrictive policies. Um, now, we're not going to say that that caused the depression, but, <laughs> but we had 40 years of restrictive policies. And what did the Congress, I mean, this was right at the time that we had the Civil Rights Act and we had other uh, great society programs. So another part of the great society program was this immigration issue. But what were they thinking? You know, it's always, you know, what, what was their hope from the bill? You said a little bit about it, but I think, I think it's really kind of interesting to say this is what they were hoping that bill would do. Well, I don't know what they were. They were sensitive to... It was part of civil rights legislation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was part of it, right, to open up the U.S. again because it had been so closed. Um, and certain groups had been kept out. Asians, for example, really could hardly immigrate here. Mm -hmm. um, and as I said, I think that they thought it was going to lead to more European immigration. They really didn't see it as opening the door to the world, which mm -hmm. is what it did. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure what they all had on them. And there were foreign policy pressures, you know, to make America look look better, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, in the in the world. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, so you think that the Vietnam War uh, and, and the Cold War issues with the Soviet Union had an influence on, on an attempt to try to make the United States look more like its ideals? Well, maybe. Yeah. Although the Vietnam War was later. I mean, well, it started then. But the, well, we let in a lot of refugees from Vietnam. That was in the 70s. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, so. Uh, one of the things about the immigration uh, that I found interesting, too, is how similarly it played out in different locations. I know mm -hmm. that I, I grew up in the Midwest uh, in a town called Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, mm -hmm. and, and there were it was about half Lutheran and half Catholic. And it was a, an immigrant mm -hmm. town, uh, mostly mm -hmm. in the 1850s to 1880s. And, you know, now it was, mm -hmm. so it was 70 years later. Um, there were a lot of Italian families, and some of them had their capital from having their grandfathers having worked with Al Capone in Chicago, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So there were a lot of different mixes of everything. But there were certain Catholic parishes, and they were split up by nationalities almost. They had mm -hmm. certain mm -hmm. names, like Holy Rosary. That was where the Italians went, different names. Um, in 85, I w went to New York to work, and I lived in Jersey City for a couple of years. And they had all the same immigrant uh, you know, population from the same period of time. The churches had all been built at the same time. They'd all been named the same thing. There was the same cashmere's for the Polish, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I found it interesting how, how that had replicated in city after city. It must have all across the country uh, mm -hmm. at, at such a rapid rate. Um, and that that, you, you mentioned that that period of time from 1880 to 1920, when this was all happening at, the, at its height, mm -hmm. that that was a big part of our, you know, industrial boom. That America's economy took off like crazy during that time. Mm -hmm. So, it, well, you've got two issues. I'm not going right. to. One is whether one is ethnic neighborhoods, right? Right. Um, that immigrants, when they come, often settle in communities with people from their home country. Mm -hmm. um, that's understandable. That's they have friends and relatives there, people who can help them, right? People mm -hmm. speak the same language. There are the foods that are available. Um, they can not, they can avoid experiencing prejudice and discrimination. So many immigrants, when they come 
you know, whether it was in the past or the present, um, end up staying in ethnic neighborhoods. But the neighborhoods sometimes are different. In the in the previous eras, and they, you know, they often went to um, uh, terrible, you know, slum neighborhoods. You know, mm -hmm. like the Lower East Side is the classic one in the literature, right? Um, but today, many immigrants are going to neighborhoods that were middle or lower middle class, where whites have left often, and there's housing available. And there are actually more immigrants living in the suburbs now than in central cities. Hmm. So that's also a difference. And they're also moving to places that um, haven't had immigration for a long time, hmm. or in some cases, almost never. Um, I mean, the South, well, I guess we could say they were forced immigrants, right? They, they were enslaved people in the right. South, but they didn't have a need for immigrants because they had a population already doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, and today there's been a big migration of, 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 of um, immigrants into the South. So that's something new. So they're going to new places. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't, oh, they are, you know, although immigrants often start out living in ethnic neighborhoods and ethnic communities, they may move out later and their children may move out. Mm -hmm. The other issue, I don't know, you raised the issues of the economy, mm -hmm. um, that immigrants were very key and played a major role in, in the industrialization of America. Mm -hmm. um, they provide the workers um, in the factories um, and, and, and were cru crucial for the industrialization of America. But today they're also playing a crucial economic role. I mean, they, they're we don't have we're in a period of deindustrialization, so they're not going to the factories that much. Although, I guess they're one factor in keeping the garment to the extent to which the garment industry uh -huh. still is in America. Um, they are actually a very high percentage of the workers, mm -hmm. but they're in many service industries. They're, um, in, you know, well, they're picking crops, which they've always done, right? Mm -hmm. They're in agriculture. Um, they're in a large range of service jobs in restaurants and hotels, um, caring for the elderly, um, caring for sick people, working in caring for children. I mean, there's a whole range of jobs that they're they're in in service jobs in this economy. And of course, I guess they practically I, I sort of say I think they practically invented Silicon Valley. They're heavily involved in the high tech. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the figures on that are actually quite amazing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the founders, they, there was a study in, in, what is it, 2018, of the startup companies that were valued at um, $1 billion or more, more than half had an immigrant as a founder, at least one founder. Mm -hmm. And in these companies, 80% of the high managerial and um, product development roles were immigrants. I mean, they're very, I mean, you're in California, so you know this. Right. <laughs> um, so they're heavily, in, in, they've been very important, not just in working in, in high tech, but in innovating and in founding companies. And, you know, that, that's a very key part of the American economy. Mm -hmm. So they have been very important. They've, they're, they've, what is it, one out of four new businesses are founded by, small businesses are founded by immigrants. Mm -hmm. They're one fifth of small business owners. Um, they've they've invented various kinds of services like nail salons, which mm -hmm. uh, Asian American supermarkets, various the Chinatown buses. I mean, you so they've invented new kinds of uh, um, uh, businesses. Um, they've although uh, in, in meatpacking, they're the major source of workers as, mm -hmm. as meatpacking has gone to the Midwest and the South. 
um, they're the main main source of workers in the meatpacking industry. So I think they're very critical to the economy. Mm-hmm. They've helped it grow. Um, I think the other aspect of the economy, and this is true, I guess, in the past as well as in the present, is that immigrants are not only workers, they consume goods and services. Mm-hmm. So without immigrants, um, our economy would be hurting. I mean, I, I think of, say, schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in, I'm in New York City and people, the schools are terribly overcrowded. And one reason they are terribly overcrowded is because we have over three million immigrants and they have a lot of children. Mm-hmm. And so the schools are crowded. But without immigrants, the schools would be closing mm-hmm. and there would be fewer jobs for teachers, for custodians, for people who work in the kitchens. I mean, and, and you can do almost any industry, you know, service industry, even the very the food they buy, the clothes they buy. That stimulates the economy. Uh, and um, so that that's very that's a really important you know thing that people forget. I think that without immigrants, our economy would they really benefit the economy in all kinds of ways. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned in the book um, that you know people worry about <coughs> immigrants coming in and taking low cost jobs away from Native uh, mm-hmm. Americans, um, but that the statistics show that 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 might that doesn't. First of all, it doesn't happen as often as people think it does. Second, I think it, it, it might affect teenage jobs, which, you know, everybody used to have teenage jobs, and that seems to have disappeared. You know, nobody's a paper boy anymore. Uh, you know, people go around in cars and throw them out the window, um, that kind of thing. Uh, but, but that overall, more jobs are created than those few jobs that are lost because of what you were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, the, that's a, a, a topic that economists look at all the time, you know, mm-hmm. is emigration hurting native-born workers? And the consensus in study after study in this one National Academy of Sciences mm-hmm. report is that overall the answer is very little, very mm-hmm. little, because they create jobs through their founding businesses, because they consume goods and services, among other things. Mm-hmm. They overall, if you look at overall the picture, I mean, there may be some areas where immigrants are competing. For example, they mentioned um, uh, one possibility is a construction. There may be competition at the at, for lower level jobs, but then it's creating more jobs, you know, for supervisors mm-hmm. or for real estate agents. Or I mean, there. So you have to really look at the whole balance. You can't just look at one, one, one level or one type of job. You have to look at the whole economy. And when you look at the whole economy, uh, immigrants are not, on the whole, not hurting the employment of native workers or their wages. And what we find is that native workers shun the kinds of jobs that immigrants are taking, actually. Mm -hmm. And they move into jobs that often uh, demands, for example, more communication skills. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's the consensus among economists that they're they're not, even though we hear politicians sometimes say they're taking our jobs with Trump, (laughs) they're killing us. They're not killing us. They're Helping us because without immigration, without these 45 million immigrants, mm-hmm. the economy would be worse off. Yeah, uh, it's an, another old uh, topic that goes back to the mm-hmm. 60s uh, mm-hmm. when people started realizing how big the baby boom was and how many people mm-hmm. that was and what a problem that would be for Social Security and everything in the future. And we know China has a big problem and Japan has a big problem. But our problem hasn't quite happened as much as we thought for this reason, right? Except it may, because mm-hmm. the baby boom by um, 
what is it, 1930, 1930, I mean 2030, you see, I'm a century ago, um, 2030, all the baby boomers will be 65 and older. Mm-hmm. So this large cohort of people, it's a very big cohort, mm. are going to be leaving the workforce. And at the same time, fertility is way down. It's been dropping in the United States. It's mm. now below, quite a bit below replacement level. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, you know, who's going to do some of these jobs at all levels? Who, mm-hmm. you know, and much as there is some anti-immigrant among a significant segment of the population doesn't want more immigration and fears immigration for certain reasons, the fact is, what are we going to do without immigrants? There's going to be a demand for immigration. And the question is how that will work out. Mm-hmm. Will it be allowing in permanent legal residents? Um, who can live here and work here, on a, you know, and not have to leave? Um, will it mean more temporary workers? I mean, who's going to care for the elderly? That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a large baby boom generation growing old. You know, that's just 65. But as people grow older, they they need care and all. They have chronic diseases and or mm-hmm. chronic conditions and need care. Who is going to care for them? Um, you know, who's going to we. You know, we 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 know that you know who's we know that people there's going to be a demand for nurses there's going to be a demand for um, uh, nursing aides there's going to be a demand a demand for workers you know people in private homes caring for the elderly mm-hmm. um who's going to do that among other things right who's gonna, and so that is an issue for the future yeah so the problem is still there but yes not not not, not quite but the I think one of your statistics struck me uh, that that um, in maybe I don't remember when maybe 2015 around there that there were 6.1 million people over 85 years old, um, but that but that another 10 years from now in 2030 when the baby boom is all retired that there'll be 14 million people so so two and a half mm-hmm. times what there is mm-hmm. now and it's exactly that problem that you're talking about yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that's a, that's a really big increase. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about some of the fun things. I was thinking when you were talking about uh, the Italians and that they weren't accepted, and I thought, well, Frank Sinatra probably helped, you know, uh, undo some of that. Um, and so you talk a lot about the the cultural additions that are made by immigrants. Um, and so why, why don't you talk about some of those influences that are going on? Uh, it's okay. not just in entertainment, but but in food. Our, yes, our food. I love yes, yes, food. Yes, of course. Immigrants have always helped us with food, right in there, mm-hmm. right? Um, Italians brought us pizza, mm-hmm. right? Jews brought us the bagels. I mean, they they become right iconic. Uh, we've, we've immigrants have always brought us uh, and and you know diversified our diet and brought us delicious foods. Um, and that's happening today. Mm-hmm. Um, salsa outsells ketchup. Uh, mm-hmm. Tacos have become standard fare. I, I like the figure that there are more Chinese restaurants in the U.S. than McDonald's, Burger Kings, and Kentucky Fried Chickens combined. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that there are Chinese restaurants everywhere, which there are because they've spread out. Not They're not just in China, you know, the way they in the past they were in these rather small Chinatowns, but Chinese restaurants are throughout America. 
um, but also their their new cuisine. You know, that's not just Cantonese; it's from um, other parts, of, you know, regional dishes in China. So they have certainly varied our, our diets. Um, whether it's eating at a fast food restaurant, whether it's going to a high, a fancy restaurant, or going to uh, the supermarket, our diets have been very much, or our food, our cuisines have been very much changed by immigration, and they've changed. Um, uh, they have an effect, and I think changed um, the films we watch, the novels we read. I mean, you only have to look at the the, the New York Times. I don't know if you read the New York Times book review, and you see almost every week there is a new novel or memoir by a recent immigrant or a second generation author. Mm -hmm. um, they are winning prizes like um, you know um, Juno Diaz for the Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde or mm -hmm. Jhumpa Lahiri for The Namesake. Um, so they're in and and dealing with themes after all there were famous writers in the past and novelists who were immigrants in the, in, the, in days gone by. Uh, but they're in and and they deal in many of the same themes, but also, you know, themes that are relevant today, such as undocumented status, or in the case of, um, I, I looked at films too, they've been changing the namesake. I don't know how many people who are listening saw the names, uh, not the namesake, sorry, The Big Sick is what I meant, which is a film by a written and starred in by a Pakistani-born immigrant about not arranged marriage, but semi-arranged marriage. It's a very good film. Or, you know, television programs featuring um, and, and about immigrants. Mm. Um, music, they've had a big influence on music, bringing Latin rhythms and melding them with um, American styles. Gloria Estefan is an example, you know, mm. Miami-based and Cuban-born. Um, people think that hip-hop was an African-American invention, but actually it was a mixture of... Um, Caribbean and African American, um, and and in New, uh, developed in New York, and some of the biggest stars in in rap are are immigrants. Rihanna mm -hmm. um, is one of them. Um, so I think there was all kinds of ways that immigrants are changing and enriching our culture. The festivals that we, you know, Cinco de Mayo has become a kind of regular festival in mm -hmm. many parts of the country. In New York City, uh, the West Indian American Day Parade. Some people say it has attracts two million people. I'm not quite sure, but mm. um, it's it, it is the largest ethnic festival in New York now. Required attendance by politicians. It happens on Labor Day. So I think there are all kinds of ways that immigrants have been enriching and changing American culture and creating new mixtures in the United States. Because it's not just that they bring their homeland culture and that stays intact here. Um, the, the, it, it thing, there's a, an American an Americanizing process, one could call it, but a mixture of immigrant cultures and, and homeland cultures and American influences that take place in the United States, which happened in the past and is happening again today. Yeah, St. Nicholas became Santa Claus over time, right? Right, right. And we eat Frankfurters, right, and hot dogs and Christmas. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I think immigrants have, I think we, one thing I did want to, you know, I, I hope that comes out in the book is how much um, America, the U.S. in the past was changed by immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this constant process of change. And so, and so the, the U.S. that um, these post-65 immigrants came to, was an America that had already been changed by by many waves of immigration, and they now are adding their own mixtures and their own impact and influence on this country. Yeah, you mentioned in your book that a lot of people, when they study immigration, they talk about how immigration is affecting America, but you're talking more about, about how the immigrants are, are having a, a, 
an influence on the American culture rather than yes. how we deal with it. Why don't, you, why don't you explain your slightly different angle on that? Uh, well, I think a lot of the studies, understandably, are of how immigrants are changed and how they adapt to this country. And that's obviously a very important topic. And mm -hmm. I myself have done work on that. But not that many um, social scientists or scholars look at the other side of the picture how immigrants are changing this country. Mm -hmm. And so what I wanted to do in the book was to take a more systematic approach to that and not just look at one aspect, not just the politics, mm -hmm. not just issues of race, not just the economy, mm -hmm. but to look at a number of domains in depth and to show how much this post-65 immigration which we are still in the middle of, so it makes it hard, to, is, is having an impact in changing American society. I think it, we tend to take it for granted and not really be aware of it so much. I think it's, you know, we're, but, but it is making, it is having a big impact on American society. And I think it's important for us to stand, understand why. I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked about, I don't know if you're going to ask about it, but we can, is, um, is the issue of race. Right. Go ahead. Um, right yeah. Yeah. Because um, immigration has changed the racial composition of the, of the population mm. in a very major way. And I think we should say that mm. um, if we look back to 1960, 85 percent of Americans were white um, today. And the, the figure is um, about 60 percent mm -hmm. um, in 1960. Asians were practically invisible at less than 1%. They're now 6%. Mm. In 1960, Hispanics were 3.5% of the country. Um, they're now 19%. They are the largest minority group. And to a large extent, it is because of immigration. I mean, this, you know, there's births to, to immigrants, but it's, it's immigration has led to this very great change in the racial composition of the population. And that's evident if we look at particular cities. I mean, in Los Angeles, for example, to give a California example, mm -hmm. in 1970, um, immigrants, uh, and this is the city of Los Angeles, not the, the, the whole uh, metro area, but in the city, um, about 10% of the city, were, and it was 1960, were, were Hispanic, and now it's about half. And we can look at, you know, cities throughout the country, and it's not just that the population of Asians and Hispanics um, and black immigrants um, has grown, um, but also um, diversified um, because it's no longer, if I, I, when I study, I, I did a lot of studies of New York, say New York, um, immigration, you know, Asian does not just mean Chinese in New York anymore. It means mm -hmm. Korean and Filipino and increasingly Pakistanis and Indians and Bangladeshis. I mean, there are large numbers from all these groups. Mm -hmm. In New York, Hispanic, they, we didn't even use that word, um, was Puerto Rican. And now Dominicans are a larger group. There's a large population of Mexicans, um, Central Americans. So there's also been a change in, in ethnicity and ethnic groups within these, these um, populations. So um, I think that, um, and the, uh, yes, and the Hispanic populations have grown too. So I think in, in cities throughout, and certainly has California is an example of this, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's it's really changed um, the racial composition of the population, but it's also changed perceptions of race. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, for example, um, 
East Asians. East Asians used to be seen as um, a yellow peril. I mean, that was the, mm. that, that was the common, um, a, a common way of, of seeing them, right? A, popular, a common popular view. And today, a common popular view is that they're a mi model minority. Mm. And partly that has to do with the nature of Asian immigration. Partly there are a number of factors involved, but partly it has to do with the fact the high among, certainly among East Asian groups are a hyper-selected group, very high percentages mm. of them are college educated and their children are doing extraordinarily well and entering elite institutions at very high numbers. So there's been a change. The, the very category Hispanic is really an, an, a new invention. It, it became an enumeration category on the census in 1980. I want, I want to emphasize that because I found it fascinating that you said, well, they put a new category in the census and pretty soon mm -hmm. things changed. So why don't you explain? Because I that's a lot of power in, in the, given to well, a census Well, the census category. doesn't determine the way we think about right. race, but it has a big impact. Yes, they wanted to count the, this group, and they, they created this Hispanic category, which be, had, then took on a reality, right? Of people Now, people from Latin America and the Hispanic Caribbean um, often think of themselves have, in, in terms of their country of origin, but mm -hmm. the term Hispanic has taken on a reality, or Latino, and now the new term Latinx. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so these are terms and ways of perceiving groups that have changed. Um, black immigrants, I think the... They're, I, I think they're especially in areas where, in cities and metro areas where black immigrants are very dominant and very nu numerous and a large proportion of the black population. And that's really New York primarily and the New York metro area and Miami. There's a greater sensitivity to ethnic differences within the black population, mm -hmm. as well as in cities where Africans are uh, the main drivers of increases in the in the black population, mm -hmm. say a place like Lewiston, Maine, uh, where most or uh, Minneapolis, where which mm -hmm. has seen very uh, large numbers of Africans um, coming, and whites also have it's affected how white people see themselves as mm -hmm. well. I think that in this country where now you know about a third of, of the country are what we would call racial minorities i mean that's a big change from the black and white notion that was so predominant prior mm -hmm. to 1960 um that um they're more aware of themselves as a racial group and a, and a significant proportion some surveys say about a fifth uh feel threatened by the decline in the white population uh the fact that non-whites are growing and having increased economic and political uh, power and, and and that they're not as privileged as, and, and a resentment of immigrants and a feeling that whites are under threat right that they're that 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 immigrants are are unjustly take cutting in line is the phrase right mm -hmm. so i think that it's having immigration has not only changed the composition of the the population in terms of race but also uh, perceptions and i mean one question and and i don't really have a, an answer to this but we i think about it is is well, how was this going to what will happen in the future um after all you know what will happen in the future in terms of uh, as the children of these immigrants grow up, a third generation arises, and we have continued immigration, which we will to some extent. Um, you know, how is this going to affect notions and perceptions of race? One of the uh, things that's been happening, and that's quite pronounced, is the growing rate of uh, mixed unions. Mm -hmm. um, in 2015, one out of 
six new marriages involved a person of different race or ethnicity, and mostly it was a white person with a non-white person, mm -hmm. uh, with a minority. Um, in 2017, one out of 10 infants uh, was born to a white parent and a minority parent. So we're going to have also in the United States increasing numbers of people who will be of mixed race. Now, will we think of them as mixed race? I mean, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. Will they have the ability to move between racial categories? Will some of them sometimes claim whiteness or not claim whiteness? Or how will they be seen by others? It's because whatever you claim, it doesn't, I mean, that's how other people also see you. Um, will there be, will a new category, even like a mestizo category, become part of our conversations? Will we think that way? Um, how will, you know, uh, we, it, there are all kinds of questions for the future. And a lot of this does have to do with immigration. We can't assume, and then this goes back to history. You know, if you were in New York City in 1910 um, and you were a Jewish or Italian immigrant, you would not, you would say that it was impossible. It was impossible that Jews and Italians would ever be seen the same way as Northern and Western Europeans ever. Mm -hmm that they would never be seen that way. They would never not, they would be, there would be prejudice against them and they would never be fully accepted. Mm -hmm. But here we are in 2022 and mm -hmm. well, there still may be some prejudice against Jews and Italians. They are seen as fully white. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, so we don't know the question. I mean, that's why you have to think that these notions of race are flexible and change and immigration has a role. So I do, I, that's something I also discuss in the book because I think right. it's... Yeah. Uh, do you, do you um, ever wonder whether uh, with the pressure on uh, whites as a race now to see themselves mm -hmm. as a, a race, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that will influence their perception of people who, who feel that because of their race, they're in trouble? Because sometimes it's like, you know, embarrassing to be white, um, <laughs> right? And, and I, I know people have traveled in the past. I, mean, I lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years in the 70s. Mm -hmm. and, and the percentage of the population that was not um, Cantonese Chinese was mm -hmm. way under 1%. And, and mm -hmm. there were plenty of experiences of that you're the outsider. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but that was on the basis of not being uh, financially uh, at mm -hmm. the bottom of the rung either. Mm -hmm. So it, it's different. But you would think that this kind of experience at the very least, will make people see what's going on in the other people's, why other people are complaining about this issue. Um, well, perhaps. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, there's a, a lot of, you know, there are uh, particularly those who are attracted to the Republican Party these days, right, mm -hmm. which, mm -hmm. which plays on these anti-immigrant fears mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, and of feelings of white of resentment, you know, towards immigrants mm -hmm. and a fear that America is, you know, no longer the way it was and that whites are losing their privileges. And the fact is, though, that whites are, as a group, are still relatively privileged and powerful in American society. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so that, you know, we haven't had a complete change yet. Um, so I don't know what, you know, how that will, how will that will work. And it's, of course, it's not just a number, matter of numbers, right? It's a question of power and influence and prestige and wealth. But, um, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see what happens, right? I think another, an issue is, you know, will people, will race matter less in interactions? Will people feel more comfortable in interactions with others? I mean, another statistic, because I do talk in the book about, um, 
changes in neighborhoods. And one of the interesting changes is the decline of all white neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, there was a study done uh, that uh, done in 2000, and it looked at um, uh, metropolitan areas that were very diverse. And it, it, it found that of the, of the uh, neighborhoods where there were 1,200 neighborhoods that were all white, in uh, the year uh, 1980, and by 2000, only a quarter of them were mm -hmm. all white. Mm -hmm. And so, and well, you can say, well, and it's not just that there were one or two people who were not white right, in those right, communities. Right. There were substantial numbers of Asians and Hispanics in those, in many of those communities. So another issue, of course, is you know, as we know that there are growing numbers, particularly of Asians and Hispanics, um, in many living together or in communities with whites, you know, how is that going to affect relations among them? The group that seems to be most, what we know, it doesn't seem to be, that is the most segregated from whites um, are, are black, black people. Mm -hmm. um, they have the most trouble, uh, you know, in, in uh, finding integrated neighborhoods. And of course, that has to do with our history of slavery and legal segregation. Um, and, you know, that, that the, the other groups did not experience. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's, that's a worrisome prospect, you know, whether their experiences will be different um, and, and worse. But, you know, the question is, as people mix and mingle in neighborhoods and uh, churches and temples and um, in colleges, particularly in universities and schools at work, um, will race become less important, right, mm -hmm. in how people feel about others? And again, with the rise of more people who have mixed races, is also a very interesting, mm -hmm. and and have not only mixed races and people who are of a mixed race, but families that that mix, you know, that of people in their families that mm -hmm. that have different racial backgrounds, right, because of, of mixed unions and how that will operate. I, I don't mean to be Pollyannish about this because we don't really know how it's going to work out. Right. But I think this is, you know, looking ahead um, an issue, not an issue, but something we need to study. And, 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 and we'll wait and see that this may lead to more amicable relations, more accommodation, um, less and, and won't be a source of as much conflict. Yeah. And the statistics among the younger people under 30 seem to indicate yes. that, that it's definitely moving in that direction and quickly. Yeah. I'd mm -hmm. like to remind all of our viewers that you can send in questions uh, in our chat room for uh, Nancy. And I have a few questions already here for okay. you. So we'll go right to those. Um, from Marianne Hurchett. Um, see the movie A Day Without a Mexican about how the California economy cannot run without the Mexican population here. I don't know if, you, if you've heard of that movie or not. Yeah. The one, A Day Without Mexicans? A Day so. Without a Mexican. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll just put that out for the whole group. And then there's another question from Lynn Alicia Franco. How do you understand the resistance to legalizing the undocumented? Uh. Well, that's a political issue. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because one party it does it's much more sympathetic to legislation to legalize provide a method for a means of legalizing undocumented immigrants. I mean, this is a problem in the United I mean, I think it's a political issue that whereas the Republican Party has made their is not as is against it. It's going to be, it would be very hard. It's going to look at what any kind of legislation in Congress to 
make it possible for some immigrants to to legalize their status has been opposed by by mostly by the Republican Party, and so it's going to be very hard um, without with with you know with, with Democrats only having fifty. Um, they don't have enough votes mm -hmm. because they would like to. The Democratic Party, by the way, um, it has a growing number of minorities, racial minorities are, are Democrats. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite 40, what is it? Racial minorities, according to a Pew survey, uh, make up um, 40% 40, 40 of those who identify or lean toward the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And they have, you know, the Democrats are responsive to that. They also, have, Democrats have large numbers of um, supporters who are college educated and liberal, and that is different from the Republican Party, whose base and key supporters are non-college educated whites, conservative whites, and evangelical Protestants. And they are not as, and, and their leaders have made immigration and, you know, anti-immigration mm -hmm. an issue. And so they're not supporting that. I mean, after all, Donald Trump did a, tried to do away with the DREAM Act. I mean, with the, the executive order that Obama passed um, for DACA. I mean, it didn't work because the support, the courts didn't agree. But, um, you know, that DACA, that's not legalization. That's just, you know, several years in which you can work and not be deported. Yeah. Um, the Democrats have supported much, you know, much broader changes, including legalization. So I, uh, yeah, and I think it is a big issue in this country with 11 million undocumented, with a growing proportion of undocumented people here, really a settled population and without rights and, and risking a risk of deportation. So um, do you want to talk for a second about how we, you know, before the Civil War, um, that there was a, a, a know-nothing political party, which was uh, much more direct and vicious about the same topic. So, but yeah, we have been there before. Target. Yeah, yeah, we have been there before. There have been nativist movements. You know, mm -hmm. there was the Chinese Exclusion Act that was passed in 1882 to bar Chinese from coming to the country. So we have had, we have, we have had a lot of anti-immigrant. Uh, politicians and party in their own parties, and and um, you know we spoke about the legislation that was passed in 1924. I mean, that was targeted at Eastern and Southern Europeans to to ban them, mm -hmm. to stop immigration. So you know we have definitely had that in the past. So I guess the optimistic part is that we've had that in the past, and yet those movements died out. So the question is, I mean, this is a question for the future. You know, to what extent will will there be changes? I mean. Will, for example, many Republican politicians, this is an optimistic view, okay, that um, will they feel as there's a growing minority population, um, as they feel that they need to appeal to, will they change some of their positions? Okay, will they change some of their positions? I don't, you know, there's other, there's other pressures on them, but that could be one pressure that might, might lead at least some to change. I don't know. Um, there's been no congressional. There's been no congressional legislation on immigration for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, George W. Bush tried to get, you know, legislation and that would be favorable to undocumented immigration, and he didn't. And he, he, he didn't. The Republican, you know, the right right wing Republicans wouldn't support it, and it didn't. It, it didn't even. It, it didn't. Pass, it didn't even come. It didn't pass. You know, that's the last. So it it it's it. 
most of the measure, you know, the action at the at the national level has been through these administrative measures, through executive orders. That's that's been what's happening. And and currently Biden is trying to undo many of the executive orders or administrative measures that the Trump put in place, including those that that, for example, the public charge rule. That has made it very difficult, more difficult for low-income immigrants to come to the U.S. And um, that's being changed. There are changes being made that will open up the possibility for more legal immigration uh, than, than had been possible, that would be possible if Trump had been elected again. Well, well, both the good news and the bad news about both political mm -hmm. parties is that they've both been on different sides of this mm -hmm. issue over, over uh, the, their their True. history. Um, so they can always go back and say, uh, let's do what Lincoln did. Or, you know, they can go back and say, let's not do what the, or the Democrats can say. Let's do what the Southern Democrats did, you know, uh, un until uh, the true. 60s. And so people people can move back and forth because each party has has made serious mistakes uh, in this way. Uh, serious mistakes from not from from our discussion point of view about the immigration issue and the facts that are on the on the table. Um, but the, the current time is that Lincoln's party is the one that's that's uh, giving this the problem. And and it was interesting that, that uh, President Johnson, uh, when he passed the Civil Rights Act, knew when he passed the Civil Rights Act that he was handing the South to the to the Republicans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, that was a big, big, big factor, obviously, in the real, in realignment of the political parties. But immigration has also played a role. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting that, that now that's such a big issue um, because it's always been, other than a few times, it's never been the big, big issue. The political parties had discussions about how they're going to approach foreign affairs or how they're going to approach, you know, this big issue or, or how we're going to approach uh, welfare, something like that um, uh, for the nation as a whole. But this issue gets a lot of play because the Republicans think that more immigrants means more votes for the Democrats and the Democrats think... More immigrants mean more votes for the Democrats. So, but that's not actually true. You know, I mean, I mean it, it's true on average, but it's not quite black and white uh, as, as you were no. saying earlier. No. Well, we've seen that. We know that about. I mean, minorities tend to trend Democratic, and the most Democratic are are are, are African Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, about two thirds or more of Hispanics and Asians have voted in the last four presidential elections have voted for the Democrat. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, and there's been a lot written about how in 2020, Trump gained 10 percent of the Hispanic vote. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the question is, you know, is that going to will there be further defections among Hispanics to mm -hmm. you know, to to the Republicans? Uh, um, I mean, that, we, we, we don't know, but you know, mm -hmm. but that's an issue. I mean, I think that you were raising that. Well, go back to what you said before, with history always going back and forth on it, you can't predict uh, which way it's going to go. But even if we do something extremely uh, stupid uh, on this issue, we can have some hope that it will change again in the future because that's what's happened most of the time when we've gone too far or done something that was idiotic. Well, I think that when we see immigration, just to um, that, that we don't know the exact numbers who will be allowed in in terms of lawful permanent residents and in, in, in the period of in, in from about 2000 to 2020, in most years, a, a million, uh, at least a million uh, immigrant lawful permanent residents were admitted. So it may not be that high, but I think whoever is in power 
Um, I think the dem economic demands that we talked about in the demographic, the demographic features of, you know, an aging population, low uh, fertility, they're going to uh, be pressures for anybody, mm -hmm. <laughs> for anybody in power to allow in a certain number of immigrants. So I think that we're going to see continued large scale immigration for, you know, for some time to come. And so they will continue to change America. Right. And um, and have an impact here. And I have one last question from the audience mm. from Bhavani Chandrasekhar. Um, mm. Immigrants will have to learn more languages. How will that affect the education of their children? Since we, this is uh, we have not touched on language, the language issue, which has always been a big immigrant issue. Do they have to all learn English and all these, you know, English only, uh, you know, over the past and stuff like that? And clearly, um, New York City's never been like that. <laughs> Well, you know, lang yeah. language, if I may say, language is one on and looking at the integration of immigrants. Mm. Um, Social scientists often say America is the graveyard of languages. Mm. Um, what's happening now is what's happened in the past. Immigrants coming as adults who speak another language uh, learn some English, but they're not fluent, um, you know, and uh, the children of immigrants are either bilingual and sometimes they even lose the parental language. And by the third generation, the overwhelming number of, of, of grandchildren of immigrants are monolingual in English. They don't even know the grand, you know, the, the, the immigrant language that they're grandparents had. And the data show that that happened in the past. It's happening today, in fact, even more quickly. And of course, the other issue is that a lot of immigrants come speaking English today. Yeah. I mean, they come from countries, I mean, the English-speaking Caribbean, for one. Many right. Indians come speaking English. Uh, you know, so and English is, over, is, is really the global language of business. So, mm. uh, I mean, I, I think that uh, there are that that's you know that that English there's a move towards English basically um, in, in, among immigrants and certainly their children and their grandchildren. Yeah, and I think part of that we we talked about it before too mm -hmm. we're, we're, that immigrants are often self-selecting, more ambitious, and everything. And mm -hmm. back in the countries they came from, in most countries in the world, if you are that kind of person, you'll be learning English most likely, um, mm -hmm. even even to get by in your own society uh, mm -hmm. at a certain level. Because um, well, it's the international language of business, um, the French are mad that that that, yes. that, that, <laughs> that their language was very close to the lingua franca mm -hmm. of the world, um, but they they missed out by twenty years because of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. but, but there we are. Well, and I think that if you want to get ahead in the U.S. and you know you need English, yeah. maybe some of the immigrants will be an advantage. For example, Chinese immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I mean, as other economy, you know, that they bilingualism, you know, that if you know two languages, you know, right. English and another language that may be helpful in, 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 in the job market or in, in, in your. But 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 you do need English in the United States. And we see that, by, you know, as I said, it's this is the, the linguistic assimilation happened in the past and it's happening over the generations. That's how you have to really look at it. You can't just look at it as a person who came yesterday. Yeah. You can't expect and And I think one of the things that's happened is because we have constant replenishment of immigration. People see people 
um, you know, Americans see um, people who are foreign, right, among them who are speaking another language. But those people may have only just come a year ago. Right. Right. But you, if you look at generations um, and you see or you see how long people have lived in the United States, uh, then you can then you can see the change. I, I, I think people when I used to give talks in New York, often people would tell me, oh, my grandparents, my great grandparents, they knew English when they come. This would be people who were descendants of Jewish or Italian immigrants. Right. And that really was not true. <laughs> 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 um, they, it often took a long time for their grandparents to learn English, but the children of it, as I said, again, the children and grandchildren do learn English and they speak it often and non, they don't even speak the home country language. Spanish has more continuity because there are right. so many Spanish speakers, but they also are, they are bilingual right. in the second generation, overwhelmingly. Yeah. So uh, of all the things to be afraid about immigration, which don't make sense, the, the language issue is yet another one because the facts are totally <laughs> against it. All you have to do is wait a generation or two. <laughs> so thank you very much, Nancy. That was a great, you know, move through uh, what happened from 65 on, plus the history oh before. My gosh. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, Nancy Foner, uh, the uh, author of One Quarter of the Nation, uh, Immigration and the Transformation of America. Thank you very much for joining us. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in now our 120th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.